Hello and welcome to The Pain Cave. My name is Jay Friedman. I am your host and I am very excited to be joined by a good friend of mine who is the executive director of Radio Kingston in Kingston, New York. He's formerly the program director at Radio Woodstock and has ties in the radio community going all the way back to 1970s and 80s in, in New York City. He is also an accomplished endurance athlete, ultra runner and triathlete. Please welcome Jimmy Buff to the Pain Cave. Jimmy, how's it going? Good, Jay. Um, I, my radio life began in the mid-1980s. I know I, um, I feel a lot older these days, but uh, I only heard about the 1970s from the people I learned radio from at WNEW. <laughs> you, you look a lot older. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's getting a little more gray hair in this uh, time of the pandemic. So, JB, how's it going? I haven't seen you in, well, I guess months because of what's been going on, but uh, you guys hanging in? It looks like just on social media that you guys are doing okay. We are. Um, you know, the radio station, you know, we're a community-based radio station. And so uh, as um, a live and local radio station, which are fewer and farther between these days, uh, it's essential that we respond to the pandemic by being an information hub for our city here in Kingston. Right. And as such, though, we had 50 um, show hosts and hi uh, shows and hosts go on hiatus because we couldn't have that many people coming through the facility. And so it's been an interesting time. You know, we discovered after a few weeks, like many others did, that Zoom actually works really well, well enough that we could start bringing some hosts back via Zoom. And so there's a very small crew of us here at the radio station manning the physical operations while we started to incorporate the storytelling of our uh, hosts and staff as they deal with um, this really remarkable and unprecedented time. Yeah, yeah. And family is okay? Everyone's doing all right there? We are. You know, my wife is um, a library director, a mm -hmm. full-time job. So she's been, you know, directing, uh, creating virtual events and trying to keep the um, library system uh, or the library access available to patrons as best they can while also doing what many other parents are doing, um, paying attention to a couple hours a day of distance learning and homeschooling. Uh, the truth is that she's working harder than I am. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And that stuff, I mean, you know, the kids are... God bless them. They're they're trying, but it's hard. It's hard for them to, you know, focus. And, you know, the teachers, I think, are doing a really good job. But, uh, you know, there's only so much that they can get out of this sort of thing. It's 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 getting tough. <laughs> yeah. And, and no one was expecting it. No right. one was, you know, it wasn't like they had a, a plan for how to um, distance learn and how to get kids engaged, you know, via whatever manner they could. They're just making it up as they go to the best right. of their ability. And I understand that as well. You know, it's a challenge here in the city of Kingston, though, because there is a, an absolute divide, digital divide between um, income and household and parents who work full time, both parents working full time, parents who work full time and don't have access to the Internet. So it's a it, it's a little challenging uh, in that regard for kids in the Kingston City School District. Right, right. Yeah, we're we're a little luckier in, in that. I think it's a little bit more of a kind of a widespread thing down here to have probably computer access and, and internet access and, you know, have relatively uh, good connectivity. And, and so I think we're probably able to do a little bit more. It's, it's got to be a, a bit more of a challenge in Kingston, which, like you said, is more of a diverse socioeconomically uh, community. Yeah, which is true about education statewide. Anyhow, I've never yeah. quite understood that, you know, we don't why we don't have a countywide board of education. You know, I grew up um, 
suburban Long Island and neighborhoods where uh, the tax base of one community provided a really great school system, butted up against literally a border, uh, you know, an imaginary border between the next town who didn't have any of those resources. And right. it's reflected in um, how kids learn and their abilities and the opportunities that uh, are afforded to them later on in life. Right. It's a real challenge. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, because 2020 sucks, let's go back to the past. The uh, the reason that all right, I wanted to have you on, among other reasons, is like I said, we, we're doing kind of a mini series of podcast episodes about or with people who are runners but have gained, you know, fame or notoriety or whatever for uh, something other than running. And you certainly fit that bill. You're an accomplished runner, but you have been a public personality for, you know, decades now on the radio in both New York uh, City and upstate. I wanted to go back to your formative days and learn about because you know, I, I've known you for quite some time, but I don't know that much about how you got into the radio business and what, you know, just wanted maybe to hear some stories from, you know, the, the days at, at NEW in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up and listening, you know, as a New York suburban kid. I um, wasn't up probably early enough to hear you on the mornings too often, but I mean, NEW and K-Rock, those were my two stations when I was growing up. So how did you get into that as a business and, and you know, what was it like? So, uh, you know, um, I grew up, uh, as I noted, uh, suburban Long Island. Um, I, I was, uh, uh, I, I had a rough and rowdy teenage life. Um, <laughs> Where in Long Island did you grow up? A town called Hop Hog, which is out in Suffolk County. Suffolk, uh, okay. Not too far uh, over the Suffolk County um, border with Nassau County, maybe 40 miles uh, east of New York City. Okay. And, um, yeah, kind of smack dab in the middle of Long Island. Mm -hmm. It's one of those great, um, Native American names. There are ten, you know, tons of towns on Long Island that have these Native American roots. And, um, you know, growing up, I was, I was, if you watch, uh, Dazed and Confused or Suburbia, you know, that was my life growing up. I was this suburban kid hanging out with other suburban kids through the uh, late 1960s into the early 70s. So um, which character in Days and Confused most aligned with your childhood experience? <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, n not Matthew McConaughey. I, <laughs> I was probably one of the lesser characters there. But remarkably, um, there is a character in Suburbia who's named Buff, uh, Eric Bogosian's wonderful play. And I think I might have been the inspiration <laughs> for the, that character, that name anyhow, because when I was working in radio uh, in New York City, Bogosian was a guest on on the morning show that I was producing. Oh, okay. And he was fascinated. That's what people just called me, Buff. Right. Not Jimmy, not Jim, just Buff. And he was fascinated by that. And <laughs> his uh, play and then movie Suburbia came out a year or so later, and there was a character named Buff in it. So who knows? Uh, but, you know, it was um, it was a time of uh, sort of this this... Um, if you've if you've ever read or seen Rick Moody's Ice Storm, the Ice Storm uh, book or film, um, there was this time in suburbia in that area where parents really just weren't paying attention. You know, when um, <laughs> mothers and wives were going back to work full time, you know, uh, women's rights and liberation ERA was a thing. And um, there was just this this, you know, no one was really paying attention. And for, you know, I, I came from a particularly typical suburban dysfunctional family 
And by the time I was, you know, 12 or 13, I was making mischief. I wasn't, a, <laughs> you know, I wasn't, you know, a master criminal, but I was getting in trouble. And uh, I, I shifted in my early teens, mid teens, you know, from being a straight on student athlete, which I was growing up. I was a, a good student. I was a good athlete. I was a wrestler. I played on the soccer team. And uh, by the time I was in my mid teens, I was just sort of getting messy. And um, by the time I was 18, halfway through my senior year of high school, I decided that I didn't want to finish. I was just, I'd had enough, you know, mm -hmm. the, the degree, the, the, you know, I'm watching all these kids in 2020 not have a graduation and it just didn't seem like a big thing to me then. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to drop out and I'm just going to go to work. And by the way, I do know it's a big thing for graduation to mark that moment in your life. Right. But I dropped out of high school and went to work in um, in a cigarettes and candy warehouse. Uh, Hop Hog has um, one of the great distinctions. It is the I think it's the largest industrial park in the United States right now. Oh wow! Fifty thousand people a day came in to to these you know one story. Not, and I'm not talking heavy industry. I'm talking about you know electronics and things like that. Right. Fifty thousand people a day came into the industrial park and then left to go to the surrounding towns. So really and, blue and, collar, obviously. Yeah. Well, um, there was a lot of computer stuff starting. So the, yeah, there was some blue collar, of course, the workers, and then there was the, the executives. But it gave um, an extraordinary uh, tax incentive to people who lived in that area. The taxes um, were very, very low as a result of the uh, industrial park. But it also provided opportunity for a lot of kids to get their first jobs. You know, mm -hmm. um, I started working in some of those factories when I was 16 part time for minimum wage just because the opportunity was there and it was seemed better than delivering newspapers or cutting lawns to things that I had done when I was younger. And once I was old enough to work, I figured, OK, well, I'll go to work. And then, you know, I just wasn't having authority too much in my senior year of high school and said, all right, I'm out. I'm going to go work full time. And I did that for a couple of years. And um you know, was getting messier and messier and messier in my life. So um, I did. And, and we can note this at the outset that, you know, I've been clean and sober for almost 35 years now. Um, but I did what people in recovery circles call a geographic. I moved back to New York City and moved in with my grandfather, which is where I was born in, in Forest Hills in Queens. And I moved in with my grandfather in Forest Hills thinking that a change of scenery might change my bad luck. And uh, it didn't really. Uh, but it did give me the opportunity eventually to go to a broadcasting school. I was always a big fan of music and was really particular about the radio stations that I loved. There's a great radio station in New Haven, Connecticut called WPLR. They were as progressive as WNEWFM was in its day. But New Haven across the Long Island Sound to Hop Hog was maybe... 18 miles as right. the crow flies, right? Uh, whereas uh, New York City to where I lived was 40, 45 miles, and the signal wasn't that great for New York City radio stations. But man, WPLR used to come in beautifully, and they had a great guy at night, DJ named Stone Man. And <laughs> I was just fascinated with it. I didn't, you know, a lot of my radio colleagues talk about being fascinated with radio from the time they were kids. I listened to the radio from the time I was a kid, and I was totally into music. But it didn't occur to me as something I could do until I picked up, uh, and I kid you not, a matchbook that um, had on the cover an opportunity to go to a place called the Center for Media Arts in New York City. Hmm. And 
so that's what I did. I signed up. They, you know, they made the financial aid application really easy. <laughs> and I found myself in a program to learn media production, including radio. And it was uh, maybe a nine-month-long program. And honestly, the best thing that came out of that program, and I say this because it's why I'm sitting here today where I am, was the opportunity to get an internship at a local media company radio station. And I ended up getting an internship at WNAW-FM in April of 1985, 35, just past 35 years. And what and was it, the it, format there that they were, mo were they mostly, uh, I mean, in the mid 80s, that was a little bit before I was listening, but uh, were they really cutting edge stuff in terms of the rock scene? Um, you know, they, so the radio station really became a force in New York City in the late 1960s. It was uh, on the vanguard of a bunch of FM progressive radio stations in Boston and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Philadelphia. Uh, St. Louis, when um, the FCC made a rule change that said uh, AM and FM radio stations had to have separate programming on, on uh, if a company owned an AM and an FM radio station, they had to have separate programming on the FM. Mm -hmm. The opportunity for essentially what we now know as college radio began. And the FM band was given to the kind of progressive hippie college radio type people. Right. And they created this thing that five or six years later, had quantifiable numbers audience that then got the attention of their owners who then started to format it. So there was this golden era of FM progressive radio from like 1967, maybe through the mid to late 1970s. And then as happens, um, it started to be started to be packaged in a slicker format and ratings, and advertising and, money to be made, etc. Yeah. And the more lower common denominator factor when it came to music, less adventurous started to kick in. Right. When I got there in 1985, you know, the legendary disc jockeys who had started the format in the late 60s, the Scott Munis, the Dave Hermans, you know, the sure. people like that, um, had uh, pretty much settled into a different form. They weren't really fighting for the new artists. Like these are the people, like, like Scott Muni was there when the Beatles landed, you know. Right. Um, and, and they had these friendships and relationships with, you know, uh, there's a fellow, Richard Neer, who is still on the air in New York City at mm -hmm. WFAN. But Richard Neer knew Bruce Springsteen before, you know, anyone had ever heard of him. And, right. you know, Bruce used to call him, Richard would do the late night show and Bruce used to call him on the air and they would have these, you know, philosoph long philosophical conversations off the air while the music was playing. And that's the kind of people, uh, you know, who who um, had populated and who had created the format. But by the mid 1980s, they were really well known and they were um, big personalities and they were getting paid really well. So the desire to rattle the status quo wasn't there anymore. But in some way. Right. Right. And, but like you said, they, they were um, they, they determined what got played. I mean, to more of an extent than before before things were heavily formatted like you're saying um it was a lot of who did they listen to and you know how did they find new artists and if the artist could establish a relationship with a well-known disc jockey then that was how they got play before the the record companies had really kind of figured out exactly how to do that right without a doubt that's uh, and and they had the opportunity to come in and create a radio show 
that incorporated a whole bunch of different genres of music and to introduce people to new artists that no one heard of, to champion new artists. And uh, that had all pretty much gone by the wayside by the mid-1980s. It was heavily programmed. It was corporately consulted. Uh, but the illusion on the outside was that it was still hanging on to this progressive past. So it was a little confusing to me when I got there at the time, but I was so excited to be in radio that that didn't become an issue for me for several years down the road when we would discover a great new artist or a, a new song that came into the radio station and the program director would say, yeah, we, we can't play that. And I would be like, why not? Well, it doesn't test well with the audience or whatever. And I thought, wow, yeah, this is, this is weird. Yeah, I did. I, the thing that really happened for me at my time at WNEWFM, which was probably seven years, I guess, uh, was that I did learn how to do radio and I did learn how to do a particular type of radio from the people who invented it. And I often say that that's like learning the Bible from the people who wrote it. <laughs> you know, this we're not talking about generations down the road and following. This is this is what they did. And I would he I would they would regale me with stories of what it was like, you know, a, a friend of mine there used to say, ah, the 60s, Buff, you should have been there. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I kind of felt like I should have. But I was exposed to a level of broadcasting and excellence and, and preparation um, that is with me to this day. So how long were you at NEW? Yeah, just about seven years. And then you made the move upstate to Radio Woodstock at that point? Not quite. Okay. Um, what happened was uh, I was working on the morning show and the host took a job at the competitor at K-Rock. And um, when he left, he left, you know, the four of us who were on the morning show supporting him behind. He wasn't going to be doing the morning show because they had this fellow named Howard Stern doing the mornings over there. <laughs> so, I remember uh, that for sure. Yeah. And, uh, and um, you know, a few months after he left, they decided that they were going to replace the morning show, that host with someone else and that the the four of us weren't needed any longer. The Me as producer, uh, some news people, a sports guy. Sports guy, um, one of my oldest and dearest friends to this day is a fellow named Kurt Chaplin. Most notably, uh, he was the hallway reporter in the People's Court, on the People's Court for <laughs> about a dozen years or more. Uh, but at that time, when we left WNAWFM, we'd been working on an idea to create a different radio program and an idea to actually uh, kind of counter, try and counter program Howard Stern, which up until that point, no one had been able to do. He would come in to, well, he did it in New York City, but he did it in all the markets that he ended up in. He would come in and he would just dominate, take over. And no one knew how, what to do about it. Right. So we had this idea, um, you know, that we were going to counter program Howard Stern. And when we left WNEWFM, um, we still had that idea and we just wanted, you know, we pitched it to some other radio stations in New York and they weren't really that interested. So we found a radio station that had studios in Chinatown. Uh, that had a transmitter in Midtown Manhattan that wasn't the Empire State Building. It had a good signal. It wasn't, you know, a 50,000-watt signal, but it was a good signal, covered New York City. And we raised investment money, and we put on our own morning show for a year called Radio Free New York. Oh, yeah. I I have heard of it. I, I don't specifically remember listening, but that was that was kind of a legendary show for a little while. Yep, we lasted a little over a year, and in that year, we... um played almost exclusively new music, a lot of unsigned music. We were really dedicated to the musical spirit that WNEW-FM used to have in the late 60s, early 70s. 
we actually used to be on the air saying we were doing WNEW FM's morning show, just not there. <laughs> Did not endear me well to my uh, <laughs> colleague, my former colleagues, some of whom I think probably still have a resentment to this day about that. And at the same time, we picked a fight with Howard Stern. How, in what way? We, we're, we're, like uh, calling him out on the air? Yeah, we, we were very vocal about, um, uh, you know, some of the things that we thought were really problematic about how he was operating and the people he was hurting and the, the manner that he, he was, you know, that, that character that he was. And at the same time, we were also pointing out that, you know, when he was playing 12 and 14 minute commercial breaks, which he, he would do, right? Right. He would, you listened, he would talk for two hours and then he would take a really long commercial break. And we would tell people that when Howard was in a really long commercial break to tune to us and we would play you two, at least two dynamite new songs that you'd never heard of from artists you might have never heard of before. And that's what the counter programming was. We realized we would never beat him. But if we could be second or third to him, then we could uh, get enough advertising money to support the money we were paying to be on the air. So as you're broadcasting the show, you somebody has is monitoring what he's doing so that you know when he goes to commercial yeah and and we also would tell people when he was out of commercial and send them back to him <laughs> oh my god yeah all we had to do to be successful with radio free new york was to um again be second or third to him in in the ratings we didn't need to be you know we didn't need to beat him we just needed to have a little slice of his audience right and way radio without getting into the arcane arcane way radio ratings worked back then if people would flip to us during his commercial break we could get enough of an audience to because we as i said we were paying for to be on the air um we could raise enough money to not only cover our expenses but to make a living that right. was theory anyhow was he i mean he must have been aware of you guys was he pissed off about you know some of these tactics um well he was aware of us and and um we had business plans that uh had been handed out to some uh, friends and colleagues where we articulated our our strategy and one of those business pl plans found its way into his hands so he did the smart thing is he completely ignored us <laughs> <laughs> he didn't say a word about it. there's actually uh, I think there's probably an audio clip somewhere where one morning Robin starts to talk about us and Howard shuts her right down. Really? Yeah. Oh, because uh, he, he knew it was just going to be feeding the fire, basically. Yeah. He, yeah. He, because he realized that what we were talking about and what we were programming, you know, our counter programming would actually work if he bought into it. Right. Right. So, you know, um, that was a huge lift and a huge effort. And along the way, we had the opportunity to introduce people to um, bands that no one had ever heard of before, like Bare Naked Ladies or The Wallflowers or The Cranberries or um, Blind Melon. So early 90s, basically. Yeah, this is 92, 93. And, um, you know, these were bands that were having a tough time getting played in New York City right. because of the tight format restrictions. And the record companies loved us because we were like, yeah, that's great. We'll play it. And they would come in and play live on the air. And um, and so we had this kind of uh, dual personality. We were championing new artists and unsigned artists. And at the same time, again, trying to pick a fight with Howard Stern. That first Blind Melon album was one of my all-time favorites. Such a great record. Oh, you God. Know? And... Um, uh, you know, I, I uh, bumped into Shannon Hoon. We'll jump ahead a little bit. I ended up in Woodstock after Radio Free New York at WDST. And at Wood Woodstock 94, I bumped into Shannon Hoon, the late great singer of the band. Right. Uh, 
And he was like, oh, yeah, I remember your show. We played in like Chinatown, right? At, oh, like, there you go. Eight o'clock in yeah. the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yep, that was us. So you were, okay, so, but you were up here. You were at um, at Radio Woodstock by the time Woodstock 94 rolled around then. Yeah. So Radio Free New York crashed and burned in uh, late summer 93. Uh, by October, November of 93, I had moved north to uh, Woodstock. I had uh, crossed paths with the um, new owner, Gary Chetkoff, who mm-hmm. he's just celebrated, I think, 27 years of owning the radio station. But he had left New York City. He had been a corporate lawyer for um, someone who owned radio stations in New York, including a former owner of WNEWFM. And I had crossed paths with him a couple of times in New York City. And um, I was, you know, I was just looking for something to do. My uh, marriage had ended in that year of Radio Free New York. A um, bunch of life changes. I thought, yeah, let me, let me get out of town and go north to the Catskill Mountains and, and see what it's about. So I came to WDST in late 1993 and stayed for a, a little over a year. Uh, I did not get the Catskill Mountain lifestyle. I made some friends. It was an interesting year, but I felt like I got I got to get back to New York City. So, so it wasn't for you originally? No, uh-uh, no. Uh, I went back to New York in uh, early 1995. Uh, by April of 1995, I was actually working at K-Rock. <laughs> okay. Uh, doing the afternoon show with the former host of the morning show, WNAWFM, a uh, friend and mentor, uh, Dave Herman, hosted that show. Sure. And, um, you know, I was there for a couple months and got a call one afternoon from the program director. He said, did you hear Howard this morning? And I said, nope. And he said, oh, he just remembered who you are. <laughs> I said, oh, he said, how do you feel about going on his show tomorrow? And I said, is there really a choice? He said, nope. So the next morning I went on the Howard Stern show. Oh, and, my God. And he did his thing with me. Uh, it was an interesting time. You know, I, I sat down in that studio across the desk from him and I looked at him and he immediately couldn't meet my gaze. You know, he just couldn't look back at me. And I immediately relaxed. The huh. challenge in being on the Howard Stern show is that there was like six of them. Right. You know, there was Jackie and there was Fred and, and there was Gary and there was John and then there was Robin. Um, and, and, you know, of all those people, you know, it was Robin who threw the sharpest darts. I was going to say, is, is she the scariest? Um, she felt, it always felt that way to me. Mm-hmm. It felt like, you know, like for Howard to a degree, I felt like it was shtick. For her, I thought that it, it could really actually be personal. Right. And, you know, at some point, I said to, I think I said to him during the interview, if you had paid this much attention to us when we were on the air, you know, we might have, <laughs> might have been successful. But, you know, I ended up, you know, apologizing and doing the thing. And, you know, and he was great. And he was really funny because K-Rock was classic rock at that time. And he knew that I didn't, I was not a, a format, classic rock format person. I wanted to play mu- music. I wanted to play all the good, new, exciting music that we could. But I was desperate to get back to New York. So I took this job and um, he said, yeah, enjoy the afternoon. Enjoy playing. Uh, enjoy your two C. He's, how did he say it? He said, oh, that's studio in the afternoon. It's like a jail cell with two CD players. Enjoy playing st- uh, Smoke on the Water. <laughs> oh, man. And then I left, you know, when I uh, got off the air that morning, um, he sent Gary to my office and said, you know, hey, Howard just wants you to know everything's cool and, you know, you're cool and everything. And I realized then that, you know, he needed some material and it was me. That day. <laughs> and, he um, needed to fill 40 minutes or whatever. Yeah. I once heard him on the air with his wife 
after he'd been talking about a fight they had the night before. And so Allison called in and she said, why do you have to talk about this stuff on the air? And he said, honey, dearest, sweetheart, love of my life. Of course, it wasn't true. Love of my life. I've got 40 hours of radio, live radio to do a week. I have to talk about something. So, you know, and it was interesting because a lot of what I said about him at the time was actually rooted in real feelings. I thought that he was hurtful. I thought that he was living out, you know, childhood trauma and taking advantage of people. Mm. And that's a position that he's actually circled around to in recent years. You know, he's acknowledged that um, he hurt people and uh, that um, he, you know, he's apologetic at some of the behaviors that he had in his early career. Now, I think some of them are still there. I think uh, it's amazing. Yeah, I don't think that's ever going to go away. Yeah. I mean, he's done what Michael Corleone couldn't do. He's gone legit. <laughs> you know, I thought it was remarkable to see Hillary Clinton on his Sirius XM show sitting beneath a giant blow up of Howard's latest book. Howard Stern comes again. <laughs> <laughs> but he's become, you know, there's a, a lack of it's almost a little bit like American history. There's a little there's a lack of attention paid to his origin by a lot of people. They just see a guy who is really famous and has this platform. And they're willing to go on his show and be part of it. Right. But, right. you know, uh, I don't know how political we get in this podcast, but um, we can get as political as you want. You know, when Donald Trump first started running for president uh, and people thought he's got no chance to win, I was like, oh, he's got a chance to win because he and Howard Stern are cut from the same cloth. Mm. In their ability to articulate someone's um, vulnerable place, to label it, to make it a thing to exploit it. I mean, it is, an, right. it is, um, I would call it a talent if it wasn't destructive in nature, but it is a, uh, an, it's ability. an ability. Yeah. 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 That I can't, I've never, I've seen in only a handful of people and both of them have it. And I thought that, um, yeah, he's, he's got a chance because we're, you know, in reality show America TV land and they wanted to see a show and Donald Trump was going to give them a show and he was really good at it. Just yeah. like Howard, Howard was. Yeah. Do you see that? Not to go off on a on a tangent, but do you see that ch having changed now in the kind of pandemic universe that we're living in? No. Yeah. No. I, you know, I don't think, you know, he's got his solid base of supporters. It's funny. Last week, Howard Stern said um, he, he kind of said that uh, he, I won't say he went off on um, Trump, but he did point out that um, Trump supporters are that Trump himself doesn't like his own supporters. Oh, sure. That he would never have them to Mar-a-Lago for dinner. Right. And I thought that's the same thing about Howard's listeners. You know, Howard would never have those people in his life. And there's a crossover in that audience. Now, I, I have a lot of good liberal friends who say, oh, he's this amazing interviewer. Um, he's a good interviewer, but it's the stuff around it that is still problematic. Right. And, um, you know, he lived Me Too in public for 20 years. Right. No, for sure. And... Much like Trump. And I think, like you said, I think uh, in their candid moments, either, you know, publicly or not publicly, they would both admit that most of what they do is shtick or, or an act. But it, like you said, the part of the I mean, for for Stern, part of the problematic stuff is that it's it's rooted in at least some degree of hurtfulness. And for Trump, part of the problem is that he's the fucking president of the United States. And, you know, Regardless of what's shtick and what's not, it's all terrible for any number of millions of people. They're both 
um, still really invested in moving the audience meter. Yeah. They will move the audience meter in whatever manner they can right. because it, it fulfills um, an unfulfilled need in both of them. And I think that's um, true to this day. And I think that for Howard particularly, you know, he's landed in this place again of legitimacy, which probably is a big surprise to him <laughs> as anyone else. But they, he still needs that attention. You know, he still needs to feel that vitality that comes back from uh, you know, an audience adoring what he does. And, um, he's just found a different way of moving the audience meter in recent years where uh, I don't think the president has, I think he's going to play that lowest common denominator just because he needs that feedback. Right. Right. And, yeah. So you were back at K rock for a while and how long were you there before you made the move upstate full time? So, uh, I'm at K rock here, a classic rock station. I'm there for a little over a year and they decide they're going to change formats to, alternative what was you know then called alternative I, I never quite so that would have been late 90s then um they switched in 97 yeah would be my guess yeah, that sounds about yeah, right yeah early 97 is when they made the format switch and you know i didn't want to do what their version of alternative was going to be which was going to be a super tight playlist and they were going to play it over and over it was going to be a top 40 version of alternative and i never actually even caught into that term because alternative yeah, to what right <laughs> right what, what's a, exactly what's a top 40 alternative that's not i mean that's a contradiction just by itself yeah well uh, so that refers to actually the, the type of rotation you know they, they would play like i remember um champagne supernova or this yeah. from bush or the songs that were popular at the time um they would play them like eight times a day no oh, champagne supernova was a good song yeah but after the seventh time <laughs> <laughs> you know, and keep in mind that um, for every extra time it was played, there was one other extraordinary artist that they weren't going to play. Exactly. All these great, all this great music on the shelf that wasn't going to make it into rotation for a, a myriad of reasons, including the fact that, you know, music was tested and, you know, audience tested and uh, focus group tested. And they weren't going to play anything that was going to upset anyone's sensibilities. They were going to go right down the middle. Right. Right. It's a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a strategy and one that worked for a company that a tenth of the point rating point could mean a hundred thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah. And uh, again, it's an arcane world. The world of radio ratings has changed in 20 years, but they're still playing that game. New York city has 70 radio stations. I think yeah, some huge number. It should have the most exciting radio in the world and it's got the most boring. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm I'm getting flashbacks to Almost Famous where Philip Seymour Hoffman as Lester Bangs is telling Patrick Fugit, you know, the war is over. They won. Yeah, you right? missed it. You missed it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is where I actually ended up when when I was starting in 1985. That was me. I was that idealistic kid. And yeah, they were like, yeah, you missed it. You know? But it was still it was still exciting and fun enough for me to ride that crest for seven years, you know, and uh, and then find my way out through Radio Free New York. So then at WDST, you were able to, I, I mean, you, you did drive that. I mean, that was an independent station or is an independent station. And, and you were able to drive that in a much more progressive direction. I mean, that's where I picked up all the new music I've heard in the last 15 years, basically. Yeah, it was always um, a compliment when someone would say, oh, you guys sound like the old WNEW. Mm. And that wasn't an accident. Right. That was, the, <laughs> that was what I loved. And that's what was being reflected there. And, you know, I ended up back in Woodstock. I've done 
I did three tours of duty at WDST. Uh, after the K-Rock experiment ended, I ended up back in Woodstock for a couple of years and then went back to New York City to work in uh, the very beginnings of internet radio. Okay. Uh, 1999, 2000, 2001. And uh, that was a time when the idea was greater than the technology. Right. Well, uh, the accessibility, you know, most people had dial-up in 99, 2000. And it was hard to stream and there weren't apps and there weren't smartphones. It was an idea ahead of its time, um, but it was an extraordinary time. And when that company folded, I came back to Woodstock and uh, I came back upstate in 2002. I've been here since. I became program director in 2005 and left after a dozen years of being program director there to come to Radio Kingston. And you guys were playing the kind of music you wanted to play. I mean, and scheduling great live shows on the soundstage there. And I mean, was was the Bearsville Theater as vibrant when you started there as it is now in terms of booking new acts and all that sort of stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there was a combination. The, the owner of WDST would book shows at, at Bearsville and so did the Bearsville management. And so there were always great shows there. Yeah. A lot of really terrific shows. And yeah, I had the opportunity um, to, and I was in the position to hear an artist and say, we're going to play this. And there was no one between us and the play button right. in the studio. And, you know, when I was handed a demo, five song demo CD of a band called the Felice Brothers mm -hmm. who were from the town I was living in, Allenville, and I put it into, you know, the CD player at home and yelled down the hall to my wife, Tracy, Hey, the Felices have a band, and she came in and sat down next to me. And after the after the third song, we were like, "Oh my god, they're great!" Yes, yeah. And they played your wedding, didn't they? They did play the wedding. Yeah, <laughs> yep. And uh, and you know, I cannot uh, overemphasize how extraordinary um, Ian Felice is as a songwriter. You know, uh, that five song EP led to their first album. And here we are a dozen or more years later. And he knocks me out time and time again. So good. Yeah. So good. But we had that opportunity. I had the opportunity to take that CD, bring it to the radio station and play it. And that led to live shows and that led to other things. And, um, you know, they are a working, they have a valid working career. And I, oh, yeah. They're a touring band. They tour internationally. Yeah. And I never um, take credit for anything like that. You know, there are uh, radio stations and disc jockeys who love to take credit for breaking or discovering an artist. Um, the truth of the matter is it's our great fortune to be able to hit play on great music. Hmm. You know, we, uh, I was not there for the creation of the music. I was not there. Uh, my only role in the, the whole process is acknowledging what obviously many other people agree with is that this is really great and people should hear it. Right, right. How, how much of a role did you play in the creation of Mountain Jam, which has become one of the kind of premier festivals in our area every summer? Mountain Jam in 2005, 15 years ago, was designed as a 25th anniversary concert. And, you know, it was four bands, you know, across one afternoon. It started at noon and I think it, I don't even think there were lights, so it had to end before dark. Um, you know, I was involved as as much as um, I am. I was in any other event created by the radio station, but it got much larger, faster, yeah, sooner, and it became its own thing. Right. So, you know, the owner of the radio station 
and the creator of the festival would spend a lot of time creating the festival grounds, building it up from one stage and four bands to three stages and 40 bands. And that was really a full-time job on his part. I would suggest artists. He would have conversations about what artists should play, headliners. We certainly supported all the bands by airplay at the radio station, but it became its own thing. And the truth of the matter is that became challenging for me Mm -hmm. because I needed an owner to be really invested in the daily operations of the radio station. He would say, well, that's why I have you. (laughs) (laughs) Except that I didn't have the unilateral decision-making ability that I needed to do that. So it was, it was, it was challenging. Um, and those days were long and hard and we would spend 360 days a year promoting the festival, you know, uh, just because those four days were so important to not just, um, uh, the people who were attending it, but they were there was a real financial incentive for it to do well for the radio station. It sure. was designed, uh, you know, after the 25th anniversary, it was designed as what they say, what they describe in, in my business as non-traditional revenue. So it wasn't it wasn't radio commercials. It was a concert that hopefully would make a profit that would go to the, uh, you know, the coffers of the radio station and help it operate. Right, right. And as with anything kind of extracurricular like that where at first you kind of view it as a bonus then it it kind of gets written into the operating costs right so you need to make a certain amount on whatever the event is because you're budgeting for that profit uh for the rest of the year yeah without a doubt and you know and it was just fraught with all sorts of concerns about um the weather you know right the weather was going to be you know we put all this effort in and something like uh, a, a rainy day or two could wreak havoc with that, with the profit profitability of the festival. So top of your head, though, I mean, all things aside, give me coming one or two of your favorite Mountain Jam performances over the years. Oh, uh, um, you know, I loved seeing Robert Plant there a few years back. Mm, yeah. Uh, you know, the opportunity to um, I'm not big on the celebrity world, you know, this is who I've met in my life type thing. But I had an opportunity to um, hang around him for a little bit. And that was remarkable because he's a guy who just does not take himself very seriously. Really? Yeah. Yeah. He was asking, I think, for a drink, you know, a glass of water or something or whatever. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm sure you can get that. And he laughed and he said, of course, I'm a golden god. <laughs> 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 Which was the line from Almost Famous. Sure, and, of course. Uh, he was making plans to um, leave Hunter Mountain and go to a, a had another gig somewhere and he was going to change his flights and they offered him a couple options and he was talking about it with a few of us standing around, you know, should he fly out of Albany? How was that airport? And he was asking our advice and he just paused and looked up and said, well, you know, there are two paths you can go by. <laughs> and then kind of made a gagging <laughs> reflex. Uh, yeah, he was. That was pretty remarkable. Oh, that's great. Because you, yeah, but, you always worry that somebody like that isn't going to have any uh, insight or anything. Yeah, no, he was very aware and very, very, um, really down to earth, and loved loved the Catskill Mountains. Like he was in the area for a couple of days before the festival, um, out on hiking trails and just going out into the you know wow. going out into the communities. He was really and um, uh, you know when he started his performance that night, he made you know he did the great Lord of the Rings reference of being knee deep in the Misty Mountains. Nice. All right. That's it. I can retire. (laughs) 
That's great. That's so good. Um, so you've been at uh, Radio Kingston now for, I'm going to say, three years, four years? Two and a half. Okay. And right. It does feel longer, but it's two and a half. Um, I mean, it, it's like you said, it's a true community resource. It's a, a real, I mean, it's it's music, but it's also uh, news and opinion and uh, just a bunch of different really interesting community shows um, that are, it's really made for the people living in, in and around the area to learn about what's going on in their community, to be entertained, to have their, have it, you know, I think you guys have made an effort to have really kind of cutting edge, thought provoking kind of talk type stuff on the air as well. Um, what's that been like after, you know, being in a, a kind of a, I guess, a slightly more traditional setting for the last 10 years before that? How's it been in the last few years uh, yeah. moving into this? You know, the um, opportunity to move into community radio um, is really the culmination of uh, my life of learning how to do radio and with the marriage of my personal beliefs and ideals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're in commercial anything, you're often making compromises to, you know, in order to feed that commercial aspect. You know, there are times in commercial radio where um, I knew things we were doing wasn't right. And I'm not talking like deeply immoral, but it just, and we did it because, you know, the advertiser wanted it done that sure. way or, or whatever. And it just got, it started to wear on me too much. And, you know, as an ardent uh, Bernie Sanders supporter, you know, <laughs> people can sort of glean by that statement where my sensibilities lie. Right. And I just wanted to be out of that scenario of having to make those compromises uh, at the expense of stuff that was really important to me. And the opportunity to, to come to this radio station, which is an 80, just celebrated its 80th anniversary as uh, AM radio station in, in Kingston. Uh, we now have an FM translator signal, which we've had up and running for a little over a year. Mm -hmm. but it's, you know, it, it has been a commercial, it was a commercial radio station for its entire life until we came in, in November of 2017. And we were able to buy it out of the portfolio of one of the largest radio groups in America, Town Square Media. Mm -hmm. And that kind of, you know, those radio groups that sprung up out of deregulation of the FCC in the late 1990s under Bill Clinton um, really turned broadcasting into narrow casting. And the opportunity, you know, the FCC rules have changed without we probably talk for another hour if we got into the the bad state that broadcast media is in and um, the complicity of things and why that came to be. Uh, so anyhow, yes, um, uh, you know, we were able to get this radio station from Town Square Media and um, take it non-commercial, which was remarkable. When we took over, you know, there was uh, a, maybe a third of the programming was local, you know, held down by Warren Lawrence, who's been at the radio station for 47 years wow. now. Uh, yeah, if I go through the list of people, like we've got a sports guy, Dan Reinhardt, who's been here for 50 plus years. And okay. we've got a bunch of other shows and hosts who've been here for well over 35 years. It's just insane. You know, having one person like that at your radio station would be amazing, but having a half a dozen, un unheard of yeah. in, in America. But they held down the local aspect, but two thirds of the radio programming was syndicated from out of you know, out of Westwood One, uh, Radio Syndicator mm -hmm. had this vague illusion of being local, but it wasn't. And, uh, you know, we opened up the platform to people who didn't have an access to media before in Kingston. So, you know, our, our 
our slogan, if you will, is many voices, one community. And when we came in, you know, it was 18 white guys and one white woman who were performing, you know, who were providing the content. Um, it doesn't look like that anymore. No. There are uh, the representation of the vast and diverse community of Kingston is on the air. We have certainly more work to do in that regard, but it was our desire to use this broadcast live local median to um, allow this community to talk to itself, to hear itself, mm -hmm. to work out and resolve issues that affect the community if possible. And it's been uh, just a dream come true. You know, it's a, uh, it's a challenge. I, you know, as I said, we've got 50 shows and 50 show hosts or more. And, you know, I left a scenario where I was managing six or seven people and now we're managing all those hosts plus another 12 full-time employees. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, wow. Yeah. Management. <laughs> all right. <laughs> no, but like you said, it's, it's very representative of the community. You have hosts of color, um, Hispanic, uh, African-American, you've got, uh, LGBTQ, LGBTQ, TQ, yep. sorry. Um, uh, shows, uh, of interest to that community. You know, uh, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, you mentioned obviously, uh, that you're a Bernie supporter and, and, um, I know you've been active in, in political causes, um, you know, speaking out for, for the left. Um, but you do have at least one show that I'm aware of that is fairly hardcore conservative. Um, is that difficult for you to kind of reconcile or is, is that just part of providing a community service? Well, which show, I don't know that I, uh, I don't know, um, which show that is. Oh, did. I thought, okay. It may, it may be that you don't, you're not still running that one. Yeah, we had um, to, we inherited a couple of conservative talk shows and they were encouraged to make the turn out of um, uh, hyperventilated Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> right, that's what I'm thinking. Type, um, innuendo and actually get into facts. I have no issue with uh, a conservative voice coming on and offering an alternate opinion, but one that's grounded in reality and fact. Right. Not hate and not xenophobia. And, you know, really says that, oh, well, the reason why we shouldn't do this is because of this and it will cost too much or, well, you know, the traditional conservative voice. Sure. Um, but we didn't, they, you know, those two shows didn't have that. And they just and they were given uh, opportunity to, to come around and they just couldn't break the they just couldn't break the, the, the mold that they were in. And that was disappointing. And we're not opposed to having those voices back, certainly. Mm -hmm. But it has to fall out of the kind of division that comes from right-wing rhetoric and uh and it's it's tough it's it's you know um you know rush limbaugh is not helping the circumstance you know no it's it seems hard to find a a rational you know viewpoint uh i shouldn't say that but it it, it seems hard to find a public facing um viewpoint that that is going to at least like you said come from a place of fact and not just uh blind rhetoric yeah and um, so, again, that, you know, that possibility does exist here. Um, and we'll, we'll see. We'll see if someone steps up and says, you know, yeah. I have a reason why we shouldn't be, you know, building the Green Line or why we shouldn't be, you know, purchasing scenic Hudson property along the Hudson River to, to construct the Empire State Trail. You know, um, sure, lay that out, but don't build it around sanctuary city nonsense and things right. like that. Right. Don't, you know, yeah. Well, before we get going, I do want to talk a little bit about running because this is nominally a running show. 
And you had mentioned earlier on that you've been sober for almost 35 years now, which I guess would line up about the time you started in radio. Um, but, you know, we do talk from time to time on this show about the kind of uh, the marriage or the the overlap of folks who have struggled with addiction and folks who then get into uh, endurance sports and, and ultra running and that sort of thing. And in some unfortunate cases go the other way. Tell me a little bit about your struggles with addiction and uh, how you kind of came through the other side and how running kind of dovetailed with that. Yeah, it's funny. Those three three things um, um, coincide not by accident. You know, I was uh, interning for six months or so at WNAWFM. I'd actually gotten paid. My first paycheck in radio came about four months into that opportunity when I was hired to come into the radio station on a Sunday afternoon and record on reel-to-reel tape the audio feed of Live Aid, uh, the big concert, the big benefit concert back in the Really? Yeah, yeah, that was 85, right? Yeah. And so I recorded and my job was to track with a timer where certain songs were performed by certain artists. So the morning show could come in on Monday morning and play them back, find them really easy, cue them up and play them back for the Monday morning audience. And uh, that was my first paycheck in radio. And I was, I don't know, maybe four months. That was August. So, yeah, not four months in. And, um, you know, I was hanging out with these people who were pretty, uh, you know, this amazing group of people, not just the people on the air, but the people at the radio station who like to have fun. They like to party. Mm-hmm. And I partied with them a bunch. And, um, you know, at the same time, I was still partying with my old friends on Long Island. And uh, I had this, you know, uh, moment where I had a really bad Sunday. And I woke up on a Monday morning early because I was interning on the morning show. And uh, I was probably even hired. I'd been hired at that point to um, be a production assistant. And I woke up on a Monday morning at like 4.30 to get on the subway from Queens to Midtown. And I got to the radio station 5 a.m. and I started to cut tape because this was pre-digital and you physically had to edit tape with a razor blade. Oh, my God. And my hands shook and I was 23. Uh. And I realized that the radio experience I was having was so good I didn't want to mess it up. I just didn't want to mess it up. So that night, then I had you know, family members who had been in AA. And so I knew about it. And so that night I went to my first AA meeting and, um, and I had tried a whole bunch of different, I had, you know, oh, such angst and you know, what's the meaning of life stuff and why am I messed up and all this other stuff. And I sat and by the end of that first AA meeting I went, Oh, that's the answer. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's the answer. And, um, you know, three days later, I was feeling great. In AA, they call that a pink cloud, right? Everything's going to be great. I'm going to be sober now. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to start running. You know, my brother, older brother was a cross-country runner in high school. I was aware of running, you know. Uh, so I started, I went out for a run, you know, and I came home and the police were standing there waiting to talk to me about um, something that had happened a week earlier. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, nevertheless, it got resolved and I was okay. And my sober life began and it was everything I thought it would be. And it was the answer that I thought it was. And I started to run and continued to run. And I didn't run competitively until, um, uh, you know, I was came when I was in Woodstock the second time. I was uh, the Hudson Valley Triathlon. We were sponsoring the second Hudson Valley Triathlon. And someone thought it would be a good idea because radio works this way. Uh, someone thought it'd be a good idea if I, if I took on the triathlon, the morning show guy could, you know, give it some attention. He could talk about it. 
guy in New Paltz, uh, Danny Brennan, who used to own the bike depot, sure. was enlisted to provide a bicycle for me. You know, and I started talking about this great bike, and I was running and training for triathlon, and I couldn't find a place to swim. And I was talking about that on the air, and um, a guy named Rob Pagari, sure, great, wonderful human being, and Mike Halstead heard about it. And they said, yeah, come join us. We swim at Williams Lake Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And um, night before this half Ironman, you know, I didn't start small. I started my first <laughs> race with a half Ironman. Uh, Mike lent me uh, a wetsuit, which was, made all the difference. And um, I was literally off swimming, riding and running at that moment. And, you know, I ran thoroughly up until that time. And, um, up until about 10 weeks ago, I ran very consistently <laughs> and, uh, restarted my running career this morning, in fact. Oh, good. <laughs> so, uh, but those things all conspired together. You know, I didn't want to lose radio. Um, I was feeling good about life and I wanted to really do something that supported that. So I started running. And so the time frame of those three being in that circle is not an accident. Right. Right. Now, prior to that time, had you considered your drinking a problem or was it just Something yeah. fun that you did. Yeah. No, I, I knew it was an issue. Um, you did. I always thought it was more of an issue for other people. That's mm. <laughs> for me, girlfriends and parents and, you know, employers and stuff. But yeah, I, I had a sneaking suspicion. And it wasn't just that, you know, uh, there were, you know, there were um, a variety of different drugs involved. Um, you know, I think I probably would have been out there drinking a lot longer if I hadn't been, you know, abusing cocaine at the same time. <laughs> uh, but it brought me to my knees and, uh, you know, emotionally and spiritually. And I just thought, you know, if I don't make this jump here, I, I might miss this opportunity. And so I'm really fortunate that that uh, that's been the case for all these years. Now, how do you view the I mean, obviously, the the running and, and eventually triathlons and everything else. I mean, it, it came about not necessarily fortuitously, but, uh, you know, at a similar time when you, like you said, you wanted to make positive changes. But is there a an aspect of it that you feel, you know, uh, what, what does it give you that, that is, is there something, I should say, that it gives you that is similar to what you, you know, needed from uh, drinking or drugs or something like that? Like I'm trying to, because, because it is such a, you know, a well-known occurrence that, that people who have kind of gone through addiction and come out on the other side, get into endurance sports. I'm just wondering if there's something inherent about it that um, matches up with that personality per se. Yeah. Uh, you know, that idea of the addictive personality that you, you know, yeah, I just, I don't, I don't know if I necessarily buy into that for sure, but it, if, but is that really like the thing is it's just like, this is something else to focus that same sort of energy on. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I um, necessarily buy into that as well. I'm sure there are cases of that, but for me, um, probably the answer was endorphins. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, you know, when I started doing these things, there was a sense of achievement. You know, of uh, you know, like the first time I got my uh, first article published. You know, mm -hmm. or, um, there was just a sense of achievement of training for something and then doing it that gave me a sense of validation that I had been chasing probably. Uh, through my addiction, you know, I was just trying to find a place where I could be me and be okay and feel okay being me. And right. that discomfort for so many years is what led me um, to drinks and drugs. And, uh, you know, when I started to put an effort into training, um, you know, uh, it was like, oh, I'm doing this thing and, um, you know, I'm doing it with a great group of people. Uh, and um, at the end of the day, when I finish a hard workout, 
there is a sense of well-being that I had, you know, I haven't felt before, and um, that was solid and didn't lead to a hangover. Right, well, right. You know, sore legs or something, but you know, not <laughs> not like the other. What is your favorite race or favorite event that you've participated in? Oh, the escarpments right up there. Yeah. It is because it's such an epic journey. It's, you know, I was, I want to say it's only 40 K it's only 18 miles. Right. Yep. Um, but it is, uh, you know, it is, uh, across some extraordinarily rough Catskills terrain. It's beautiful when you're out there. Uh, you are tried and tested any number of times in any number of different ways. And, um, it's just, it's the one race that I, I just particularly love, but I love the variety of things like that. Like for instance, the SOS, which I haven't done in 15 years. Uh, what an extraordinary experience to be able to run, ride and swim, but in, in the order that it's laid out and in the place that it takes place, mm -hmm. just amazing. You know, um, the beauty of the SOS, I, I mean, among other things, the scenery and the community and everything else, but just the way that it it basically just takes its cues from what the natural landscape has given you. It's, it's, um, you know, it's basically, here's a lake, here's a lake, here's a lake. How are we going to link those up? Oh, it makes perfect sense. It's just, it fits perfectly into the landscape. And, uh, that's what I love the most about that race. Yeah. And it feels epic when you're doing it, yeah. you know, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of those kind of point to point races and, you know, I, I've never done a standalone road marathon. I've done road marathons as part of an Ironman a couple times, mm -hmm. uh, but I've never actually just done a stand. I've done trail marathons. I've done ultras on trails, but I've never actually done a stand standalone road marathon. And I, you know, to a degree, it doesn't. There's not a lot of attraction for me in that regard. Uh, it's the experience of the, the, you know, the entire cumulative experience of the things that really drive me from my favorite events. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, I mean, Boston and New York for, you know, a couple of different reasons. I think, you know, the history, I mean, certainly New York for me growing up near the city and for you growing up near and in the city, I think as a point to point road marathon, the way that the community responds to that race and just, you know, you hit all the different neighborhoods and everything else. I think you would get something special out of that. And Boston, because of, again, like you said, point to point nature, the history of it. Um, just the thousands and thousands of great runners who have run it over the years. I mean, it's been going on for over a hundred years and, uh, you just, you know, all the landmarks and everything else. And again, another one where the whole community, the whole city shuts down, the whole region really shuts down and comes out for basically this big party. Um, those are two that would be worth doing. Uh, beyond that, I kind of agree. It's, um, you know, I'd, I'd rather be on the trails. Yeah. And I think you're right because, um, uh, you know, uh, I did the inaugural New York City triathlon back in 2001, mm -hmm. and it was a you know an amazing experience to um, you know swim in the Hudson, to ride up the closed Henry Hudson Parkway, mm -hmm. and then to run from you know 72nd from Morningside Park into Central Park to the finish line. That was you know I it was I have to say running across 57th Street in a speedo was compelling, <laughs> um, but it was because I love that city. I lived and worked there for a long time and I just have such a, uh, an affinity for that. But yeah, so I can hear that about Boston and New York. Yeah. Yeah. Buff, before I let you go, we have to play the game that I play with all of my guests. Now you, uh, m m many of my guests who are younger than me or, um, why don't we say less cultured, 
uh, do not remember the great radio show Desert Island Discs, but I know that you do. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, so we're going to play a game called Desert Island Picks, uh, where I'm going to send you to a desert island for a year, and you are going to bring with you one book, one album, one food, and normally we say one beer, but I'm just going to allow you one beverage to go to a desert island for one year. What are your desert island picks? Oh, uh, book would be uh, Soldier of the Great War by Mark Helprin. What's that? I haven't heard that one. It's in a, a remarkable story. Helprin's probably most famous for a book he wrote in the mid-80s called Winter's Tale. Okay. High up on my list as well. Uh, it's sort of, um, it started to, it's kind of sort of a metaphysical ending that sort of leaves me a little, hmm. But A Soldier of the Great War is an amazing story of a veteran of World War One who is in his 70s and he's... Um, on his way to visit his sister in Italy, where he, you know, he's an Italian, and he meets up with a young Italian farm boy, and they get into some trouble, and they get kicked off the bus. And I guess this takes place in uh, the story bounces back and forth, but uh, in the present time is like in the 1970s. And along the way, he tells the boy his life story, which um, begins in Rome as a son of privilege, and takes him through the horrors of World War One, and involves extraordinarily beautiful writing from Helprin, who's just this amazing writer. Hmm. And it's an adventure story, and there are things in there that you know um, feel incredibly uh, amazing to me, and want me to. I feel like I want to go to Crete and run the trails there because a portion of the or Sicily, you know. And um, but he's just a, a beautiful writer, and the story just covers so many, so many great topics, philosophical and otherwise. Um, album. Uh, man, that's, you know, I would probably say Blood on the Tracks, Bob Dylan. Oh, so good. Yep. Uh, he's so good that he's got more than one masterwork, and that's certainly yeah. one of them. Yep. Uh, what was the uh, beverage? Uh, yeah, one beverage. Um, I would probably take coffee. Okay, perfect. And one uh, food. Uh, food. Um, uh, I, I would probably be a, um, some sort of pasta with meat sauce. Sure, yeah. It's that or pizza. Those are the right answers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, that, that would hold me for a little while. Yeah, exactly. Buff, this was great. Uh, thank you so much. Plug the radio station or anything else. Uh, we're RadioKingston.org is our website. Um, all our programming is archived. Uh, we have apps as well. Um, you know, we have a pretty strong Facebook presence. Uh, we're now doing shows by Zoom. So most of our programming has returned. And yeah, if you're um, curious to check out, uh, you know, because a lot of what we talked about is specific to Kingston, but they're universal topics, you know, sure. that affect us all. So um, there's some amazing, amazing programming here. And uh, I'm fortunate to work with the people who created. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Buff. Uh, say hi to everybody for me and stay safe, man. Likewise. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and until next time in the pain cave, keep putting one foot in front of the other. Broken down and beaten up, the years have been long and tough, but I'm not dead. Happy now just to spend some time with friends and have a roof above my head. I'm not jaded, just been faded, like a good old pair of jeans. Rusted like a proud old car that's drove a little too far and seen too much rain. But long ago, as a child, I look about the night sky in wild wonderment. Then ride the bus, feel upset to think of all the years I'd have to go through them. 
still young And I was still 